Hi, I'm Pinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello and welcome to another episode of It's a Continent. How's it going? It's getting close, isn't it? Like every time we <laughs> record, I'm like, we've got a book out soon. The book is coming out. It's a, it's fast approaching. It's been yeah. like a little baby and now you'll all get to read it. Um, so yeah, exciting, exciting times. Don't forget to pre-order. Um, you can pre-order on itsacontinent.com slash book. Obviously in the episode show notes, you know how it is. Yeah, all good, all good. Oh, it's exciting. It's like we've been sitting on a bad boy piece of information and we're... <laughs> <laughs> and now finally, after about... Yeah, I've lost count of how long it's gosh, been. It feels like forever. <laughs> how long it's been. No, we're so excited for you guys to read it because the story's in there. I know we say this about every single story. Wild. But we go in, let's just okay. say that. All oh. right, should we go in on this one? Let's go. African pride, let's go. African pride. So this week, uh, my African pride is inspired by Time magazine's list of the most influential people of 2022. Oh, so not, not Elon Musk. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> and I'm not, <laughs> not even apologising for it. Mine goes to, and I don't know how I missed this story, but mine goes to Timnit Gebru. Um, so she's an Eritrean American computer scientist. In 2018, she joined Google as co-lead of Google's AI ethical research group, which made her one of the most senior black women to lead the team. So things we love to see it. We love to see that. But Google decided to go a little bit mad. So her role was basically to make sure that the company's AI products were ethical and didn't perpetuate like racism and societal inequalities. But she was fired two years later in 2020 for basically doing her job. She basically brought to light software and data discrimination that existed within the company's kind of products. And did Google do Black Square Summer? I'm just, I'm keen to find out if they participated. Gosh, we need to see. I actually want to Google this now. But anyway, we're, we're recording. We're on. No, I'm sure there's a bot that's done this. If not, please, someone create one. Following this, she went on to found the Distributed Artificial Intelligence Research Institute, which is a company that aims to document the harms of AI on marginalised groups and develop a vision for how organisations can basically make sure that AI systems can benefit these groups positively. So her work, I just wanted to highlight just how important it is. I feel like I've got my techie brain on at the moment, but AI is growing ridiculously and for example in 2019 amazon have a facial um recognition system called recognition with a k and basically (laughs) i don't know why they did that yeah but basically they were called out by ai researchers including timnit because the system was biased against women and people of color Uh and the tech that they that Amazon had created was being sold to law enforcement agencies. Sorry, so what? You can, yeah, you can <laughs> see where the challenge there. Do you know what I mean? You know what? This was literally covered in Ab- Abbott Elementary. If you haven't seen the episode, I strongly recommend. But it was like the whole literacy to prison pipeline. I mean, obviously it was fictional, but these things are real. It's quite yeah, scary. Yeah, no, these things are real, yeah. So we need to stop it, like nip it in the bud right from the start. And, you know, 
AI, just in this very case, really has the potential to cause a lot of harm. Obviously, there is good as well, but it's really important for us to have voices like Tim Nick open to holding these tech giants mm-hmm. to account because who knows, you know, if the technology is being introduced, it already has bias instilled yeah. in it and racism. I mean, exactly. If the people you know who are, mean? It are racist or hold social biases, then so will the ai (laughs) yeah yeah this is not going to lead to good progress so yeah thank you so much like i just wanted to highlight that i can't believe i never heard of this story but i'm yeah yeah shout out timnit amazing so where are we off to i don't think we've given a clue of where we're going but yeah well this week we are in burundi and that is in east central africa with its neighbors including rwanda tanzania and the democratic republic of congo So Burundi is part of a small group of African countries whose borders were actually left alone by colonial powers. So that is a rarity. That's a good pub quiz question, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually pretty... Would they have this like the pub? (laughs) Can't imagine imagine a pub having this as a question, but hey, it's one one that you could use. So the boundaries that you see today uh, for Burundi are those that actually existed pre-colonialism and were established by the Burundian monarchy. Now, before we get into the story of Prince Louis Ragasore, a key political figure in the country's history, let's just give a little background on Burundi. So once the scramble for Africa took hold, Burundi was placed under Germany's control in 1890. Germany decided to bring Burundi together with some of its other African territories, Rwanda and Tanzania. So these three territories formed the German East African Protectorate. However, following World War I, Germany lost control of its colonies with Burundi and Rwanda being placed under Belgium's control. Just highlighting this because I saw a tweet the other day <laughs> that said that Germany was not a colonizer. So just, you know. What? Someone, please tell me you responded to being like, listen to this. It was taken care of, thankfully. Okay, so, good, uh, good, good. Yeah, just to mm. highlight that just because there are no German speaking African countries right now doesn't mean that Germany were not involved too. Under Belgium's rule, Burundi and Rwanda were brought together to form Rwanda Urundi. Is I wonder if that's English or <sighs> Honestly, I just some of these <sighs> these names. I, we shouldn't be surprised five seasons in, but <laughs> Rwanda Urundi, really? Okay. This new territory was under Belgium's control from 1916 to 1962. Belgium made sure to fuel ethnic tensions within the country, specifically amongst the Hutus and the Tutsis. The Hutus were considered at the bottom of the social pyramid, and they represented around 80% of the population, whilst the Tutsis were at the top and made up roughly 15% of the population. Belgium was biased in favour of the Tutsis, and this bias was driven by colorism, and as a result, the Tutsis received slightly better treatment than the Hutus. As was the case in many African countries, the end of World War II proved to be a turning point for the country, as the idea of independence swept across the continent. It was basically agreed that Burundi were to be granted independence, but elections needed to be held in September 1961 to make sure that a government would be in place to lead the soon-to-be independent nation. Burundians began to push for independence, with four political parties emerging at the time to help make it a reality. So you had the Rural Democratic Party, the PDR, the People's Party, PP, the Party for National Unity and Progress, UPRONA, and the Christian Democratic Party, the PDC. 
Uprona was a major and highly influential party introduced in 1958 and led by Prince Louis Ragasore. The prince was the eldest son of King Wambatutsa IV of the Burundi Kingdom, a kingdom which had been in place since the 16th century. At the age of 20, the prince went to study in Belgium. Then, he returned to Burundi to focus on pushing for the country's independence. Before forming Uprona, he worked to influence the Belgians, advocating for them to establish a constitution that would prepare for an independent Burundi. This was then followed by the prince introducing cooperatives to, again, prepare the country for economic independence. You can probably guess that Belgium was not too happy with these activities, and they banned the cooperatives in 1958. But Belgium's response did not phase the prince. That same year, he introduced Oprona, which was the first political party of its kind in the country um, during those times. The party's focus was gaining independence, and Ragasore also encouraged Burundians to boycott Belgian stores and refuse to pay taxes. Once again, Belgium wasn't too impressed by this approach, and instead they placed Ragasore under house arrest for what they described as civil disobedience. A.K.A. I'm not able to make money. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you're not doing what I'm telling you to do, so I will count it as civil disobedience. You are an inconvenience. (laughs) Exactly. Prince Louis Ragasore was known as the unifying prince as he was keen to unite the country's ethnic groups. Through Uprona, he did just so by bringing together Hutus, Tutsis, Muslims and Christians under this one party. The prince and his party were considered a threat by Belgium because, you know, the uh, empires don't like seeing uh, black people gathering together, do they? Mm-hmm. So they decided to put their efforts into supporting the Christian Democratic Party, the PDC. The PDC was led by another royal, Pierre Baranyanka, with the support of his sons. The PDC's close relationship with Belgium saw them advocate for delaying Burundi's independence and ensuring the country maintained a close relationship with Belgium. Also, the Belgian government supported them to ensure they won the September 1961 elections by introducing a transition government that was largely made up of members of the Christian Democratic Party. Sounds like a puppet to me. Belgium, I swear, they just had like a way of, they just had a way of bringing in these puppets in the, you know, in whatever they were getting involved in order to maintain control and power over their um, colony. I was just actually thinking, thinking into my mind, it's covered in the book, but we do discuss one of Belgium's puppets in the DRC in the book. And when you mm. think about that, it just feels like a part of their MO, their strategy, isn't it? Definitely. Like anyone who's inconvenienced needs to be removed. But anyway, possible. We see that with many different examples across the continent. And then installing these leaders that are very favourable to them remaining in power is the part of the modus operandi. A bit of Latin there. I just went with MO. <laughs> <laughs> That year seven Latin, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wait, you you legit did Latin? They actually had Latin lessons in school, yeah. Uh... But you can also use yeah. MO, guys, it's fine. Beyond these two rival parties, as we mentioned before, you also had the Rural Democratic Party, the PDR, which was focused on predominantly representing the country's rural communities, followed by the People's Party, the PP, which focused on the people's political, social and cultural liberation. In September 1961, when the elections were held, Uprona successfully won by a landslide, gaining over 80% of the votes, 
with Prince Ragasore sworn in as Prime Minister that same month. Following the party's success, the prince made it clear that uniting the country was his focus and that he was open to having valuable individuals from the opposition take on leadership positions in an independent Burundi. But on Friday the 13th of October 1961, only 16 days after being sworn in as Prime Minister, Prince Louis Ragasore was assassinated whilst he was out having dinner with ministers at a restaurant. I could kind of see this coming. I saw what he was doing. I saw that he was very much wanting Burundi to be independent. Mm. He didn't want to rely on Belgian powers and started doing things like boycotting. And you could almost have just predicted that this is what would have happened. And it's so sad that that's the reality. Mm. Every time we cover someone who is really like encouraging them and willing them on to, yes, you can bring change to the country. And then normally they're assassinated. And this actually plays such such a huge part in the underdevelopment that we do see in many nations because it's not just yeah it's not just the exploitation but it's also the removal of leaders that are innovative and bold and have huge plans for their own countries and very like nationalist but obviously Mm -hmm. in the right way it's just really sad to see that being robbed of leaders actually is another factor in why the continent is the way it is and i do think there was probably at the time a sense of shock Mm. from belgium Hmm. because you know they had already sort of created this transition government, like you said, in order that people began to see kind of members of the Christian Democratic Party in power. Do you see what I mean? And then to have such a large majority completely vote for the opposition must have been a massive slap in the face of them. But I'm actually really happy that Burundians took that stance and still wanted Ragasore in power because they recognised that he was going to deliver something positive for the country. Exactly. They saw him as a threat. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of Patrice Lumumba, actually, this story. Yeah, yeah, it does. The prince's assassination was shrouded in conspiracy, with some putting the blame on Belgium and others placing the blame on the Christian Democratic Party. Who did assassinate the prince? He was killed by Jean Kajorgis, a Greek national who had settled in Burundi for some time. Kajorgis did not carry this out alone. He had support from members of the PDC and other Burundians. Once those involved in the murder were identified, the case went to court and Kajorgis was sentenced to death and executed on 30th of June 1962, a day before the country officially gained its independence. The other individuals involved received prison sentences and it's worth saying that the judges who presided over the trial were all Belgians. Sorry, wait. (sighs) Yeah. We're not saying, and obviously these judges must have been clearly fair, right? Kangaroo court, you know how it is. These prison sentences were changed when the trial was reopened on the 5th of June 1963, following Burundi's independence. During the new trial, which was now led by Burundian judges, five of those accused were resentenced and received death sentences. All five individuals were executed 10 days later on the 15th of January. There are a couple of historians, when you read up on the story of uh, Prince Ragasore, who do accuse Belgium of being involved in his death. And there are several reasons why this is. But we leave it to you to consider whether you think they had some involvement or not. So one of the reasons that are given is that Belgium obviously didn't want Uprona to win the election and supported the PDC because they were considered more obedient and would likely allow Belgium to maintain some covert control over Burundi post-independence. It's a colonizer handbook. You've got to just kind of follow it, you know? Yeah. 
that is a potential, could have been a reason why they might have decided to assassinate the prince. Also, following Uprona's election win, Roberto Renier, the Belgian governor, held a crisis meeting in which he stated that Ragasore must be killed. This was brought up during the investigation into the assassination, but it didn't go any further. Right. So someone could make death threats at work and not be investigated. Not be investigated. You know, the Belgian judges who oversaw the trial uh, the first time round didn't think it was worth worth digging into, you know? No, no, we're not worth. He's just said that, you know, the prince that wasn't assassinated needed to be killed before he got killed. Coincidences, right? A third reason which has been highlighted is that Britain's ambassador to Burundi, James Murray, stated that Belgians had an almost pathological hatred for Ragasore because of the threat he posed in terms of their relationship with Burundi. He also highlighted that Rainier's words go very far in the direction of incitement to murder. This might be the first time I agree with Britain on a matter. <laughs> so, again, we've got a British ambassador coming in and saying... I mean, sorry, but if you have someone, someone from Britain... You have someone, like, OG colonisers being like... Yeah, I actually think that might be inciting murder guys he did say ragasore must be killed i think that's all it's also the very the words that he said he says very far in the direction of inciting. do you know what i mean someone saying ragasore must be murdered i think goes beyond that in is a definitive like it is pretty much another reason why, for some historians, Belgians were involved in this is that Jean Kajorgis, motives for the assassination were not fully investigated. You know, did he receive money for the murder? Who gave him this money? I just wanted to highlight, I'm not a murder detective, but I'm sure asking those questions is part of like policing 101. Yeah, I've watched enough episodes of Crime Watch to understand what's involved here. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you get something out of this? Because... Not going to lie. How does a Greek national... Fair enough, he was living in Burundi. Well, why anyway? It's just in a time with not much air travel. (laughs) It just feels... Do you know what I mean? It just feels so random that... Do you know what I mean? Like, how do... A Greek national finds himself living in Burundi, okay, assassinates the prime minister... No one investigates whether he received any money for it. I don't think he was doing it. I'm not going to, you know, not putting words in other people's mouth, but I'm 90% sure he didn't do it because he felt just so strongly Burundian that he just felt like actually Ragasori did not represent him. I really don't think that's part of the story, but hey. And even so, they wanted a landslide, so it would be very, very unlikely that a Burundian yeah. person would want to kill Ragasori. Another potential reason. You then also have the fact that when the trial started, the Belgian government threatened three Belgian officials who were set to travel to Burundi and take the witness stand. They basically said that if the officials took part in the trial, that they would no longer be welcome back in Belgium and they would lose their job. My question is why, really? Why can't I help this investigation and travel to Burundi again? It does smell of guilty. Another final point to highlight on this, and there are many reasons why people feel that Belgium was involved, is that before his assassination, Ragasore had put in a complaint against seven senior Belgian officials, including Roberto Renier. Why was this not investigated? One thing I just wanted to add, and I think you mentioned it earlier, is just how this is so similar to 
Patrice Lumumba's yeah. assassination. And I was looking into it and Lumumba was assassinated in January 1961. Eight months later. Wow. Ragasore was assassinated. In the same year and no one's doing anything. In the same year. This thing, Belgium had one of these like colonial rebrands because now it's just about chocolate and beer, isn't it? But these guys, the colonizers were actually responsible for killing leaders in power. And they admitted to and apologised for Lumumba. You know, they had, it was quite recently, wasn't it? Um, Took a long time and they still haven't returned his remains at the time of recording. Yep. So you're telling eight months later, another prime minister in a country which is just about to gain independence. How? I don't understand. Like, how is, yeah, it's so wild to me that this is just their solution. But again, it's, we do see it in examples of these kind of powers and they just uproot the leaders and the country just goes into a state of instability because of this. And it just frustrates me because I think, Maybe I'm too much of an optimist, but if you then had the likes of Ragasore, Lumumba, actually being able to deliver mm. what they intended to in terms of the nations that they supported, you just think, like, what could have been? Exactly. But you, you, can't, you can't think like that, right? Because some leaders were all very supportive on independent states. Uh, yeah, a certain uh, Zimbabwean leader was a bit like that too. But at the same time... <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, just the potential in there that you just think, like you said, you know, it, with these leaders, a lot of African nations just did not have a chance, a fair chance even to begin with, because exactly the people who were fighting for them ended up being murdered. This is no choice. Many highlights that Prince Louis Ragasore was failed by different groups, including the Belgian government, the United Nations, and the independent Burundi government, as they all failed to thoroughly investigate his death. Also, the judges who oversaw that first trial neglected oral testimonies and written documents, refrained from questioning people who might have been implicated in the affair. Post-independent Burundi was not the country that Prince Ragosore had fought to create, and according to some historians, Ragosore's death set the country on a downward spiral. Ethnic polarisation, which had not previously been a significant issue in the politics of decolonisation, rose rapidly amongst the political elite. His death shattered peace between ethnic groups, leading to decades of war and instability. And there you have it. That basically sums up the state of it, doesn't it? Yeah. There's some articles that I remember seeing around this, around how Burundi has actually started to question and request Belgium for reparations because of their colonial crimes. And they're saying that they need financial compensation and collaboration on writing the colonial history because... We wouldn't have known about this. I mean, we know that Belgium was involved within the DRC, for example, but we just don't... The story about Burundi is not as well known. There are really horrific colonial crimes Mm -hmm. um, that have taken place by Belgium within Burundi. And at the same time, Burundi has requested to reopen the investigation into Prince Louis' assassination as well. It's just really important to actually... Mm. Even today, and I guess, you know, yes, this happened in the 1960s, but they need to be held account. Obviously, people make your mind up whether they're involved or not, but I have my own stance because I feel like for those reasons, must have been, for me anyway, some sort of involvement. But I do think it's really important for it to be reopened, just as it was for when it came to the assassination of Lumumba. And then it took, wasn't it a Belgian law enforcement officer who, and trigger warning Mm. before I say what I'm going to say, 
Lumumba's body was dissolved in acid mm. and what was left of his remain was his tooth. And I think it was a law enforcement officer, a Belgian law enforcement officer, who took that tooth and basically kept it at home for decades. A, why? But that's another story. But um, I just do think it's really important that we push and we get these things reopened, relooked at, and make sure that everybody is aware of stories like this. Because how can the Mumbug be assassinated in Jan? And then in October, you have another... When I saw that, I was like, wow, they really were out assassinating anyone who wanted independence. That's it. It wasn't a peaceful... That's the thing, independence was not a peaceful process for a lot of these countries. It wasn't a case of them saying, okay, yeah, we'll just hand over the torch to you guys. It wasn't a peaceful transition for a lot of countries. There was always bloodshed involved. It's just, and that's even before they even become independent. So they have to have dealt with all of this before they even come into their own. So I'm definitely going to do some more reading and looking about this. And yeah, we'll put the episode show notes, which will have the sources in there as well. Right, that is us covering Burundi and the story of Prince Louis Ragasore. We will catch you in two weeks' time where we will be, Chinny. <laughs> we will be going pre-colonial. Ooh. <laughs> we will be looking at the Kingdom of Axum, which is now modern-day Ethiopia and Eritrea. So that will be exciting and hopefully a little bit more uplifting. Oh, look at that link. My African pride... Eritrean American next look at that look at that it's like we do this all oh it's all that it's like it was planned (laughs) we actually don't but for some reason we always end up finding (laughs) weirdly alignment but yeah sounds good and yeah thank you for listening and we will see you soon thanks for listening Bye. bye